For so many of us, our day-to-day is filled with feelings of bondage, of being stuck. For some of us, it is being stuck with internal struggles, fears, even addictions that hold us tightly. For others of us, it is being stuck in a set of rules we dare not break, fearing what others and God will think of us if we are fully known. But what if there is more for us? What if there is freedom? If you don't have a Bible with you, the, the passage is in your bulletin, your order of worship. If you don't own a Bible, there's uh, like five or six on the back table. Grab one of those. Uh, that is our gift to you. We want you to have that. But no matter how you have it in front of you, it's going to be good to have the passage in front of you so that you get real clear that I'm not making this up, because if I am, we're all wasting our time, right? So uh, try and have it in front of you if you can. If you're visiting with us this morning, we're in the midst of a series uh, a series of sermons through the, the New Testament book of Galatians that we're calling Freedom. And we're calling it that because uh, we're looking at the fact that Christianity ultimately is about freedom. I know that's shocking to many of us, because for most of us, that's the last thing we associate with Christianity. Freedom, for most of us, Christianity, or or, or freedom rather, is is something that we have whenever we can do whatever our inclinations are at the moment, right? Well, like if we have a desire to do X, like freedom for us is I'm going to go do that with nothing telling us we can't. And, uh, And so that to us is freedom, but if you think about it, it's more like a bondage to ourselves, is it not? This book, though, is about the fact that Jesus came to deliver us from our need to perform. Jesus came to deliver us from our incessant drive to make a name for ourselves. That that Jesus came so that we might not have to prove our worth or, or work so stridently to make up for our failures. And this morning, the Apostle Paul, who wrote this book, tackles... Um, a little of how this works by talking about the reality that apart from Jesus, we are slaves to whatever it is we think will give us life. Slaves to whatever it is we think will make us right. Slaves to whatever we think will make life worth living. But through Christ, we can have the freedom of children. So if you've got your place in Galatians 4, as is our habit here, would you stand? I'm going to read the first four verses, or seven verses, sorry, of of chapter 4 in Galatians Friends, this is God's very word. I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave, though he is the owner of everything. But he's under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into your hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. This is God's word given for our flourishing. Would you pray with me? Lord, uh, we need you to act during this time. We don't need to call you here. You've called us here. But we do. We, we, are, we are a people slow to hear. And our hearts are stubborn. We don't, we don't like to, to hear often what you have to say to us. And we need you to work. Because you are to be our soul's chief desire. And so we ask that you would speak. You would open our hearts and our minds to hear your gospel. And that Jesus, you, in fact, would preach it by your spirit to us. Let what you have done, Jesus, and who you are, come to the fore. 
And let me just kind of fall to the wayside. You hold the words of eternal life, Lord. So speak. Your servants are listening. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Go ahead and seat. A couple of weeks ago, the latest iteration of the musical Annie was released in theaters. Um, This this time with with Jamie Foxx starring in it, who, because I went to middle school in the early 90s, will always be associated with Wanda from In Living Color, right? Like, that's just... I probably shouldn't have been watching that when I was in seventh grade, but I was, and so like that's always who Jamie Foxx will be to me. Anyway, so uh, but Jamie Foxx is playing the role of the benevolent millionaire who who adopts the orphan into his home, right? You know the story. Uh, it's a little girl, uh, no no parents, lives in orphanage, basically is is treated like a slave by her by by the woman who's taking care of her and the other orphans, and then suddenly is adopted into a home without want and given insane privilege as the daughter of one of the nation's wealthiest. Something incredibly fantastical about that idea, and yet at the same time, it's something that all of us want. I mean, who wouldn't want that, right? To go, to go from, to, to, to leave behind an isolated, lonely, and impoverished existence for opulence, privilege, for family. What if I were to tell you that that's available to you right now? That, that's, that's actually brazen claim of this passage that that kind of adoption is available to you as we see that that is exactly what this passage declares to us so we're going to look at this in two ways this morning as always if you've been here you know there's an outline in your bulletin if you don't like those just leave them there if it helps you track take it out uh, two points this morning okay just two points we're going to look at a real bondage and then we're going to look at a new standing okay a real bondage and a new standing let's look at a real bondage first by seeing a common example if you've got a Bible in front of you, look down at the first two verses. Okay? Paul's using an example here that would have been very common to those that were uh, hearing him for the first time. But it's bizarre to us, right? Because it talks about slaves and, and sons and all this stuff, and we don't get that. So let me, let me explain how this would have worked. If you were in a wealthy household in the first century, your, your household consisted of several groups of people. You had parents, right? You had the parents, dad and mom. And then uh, you also had the kids, of course. You've got to have the kids. And then uh, below the kids... Like, I've already betrayed what, what we would think. But in addition to the children would be the slaves. Now, when I say that, most of us, because of the history of our country and the ugliness that's there, think of one particular thing. But slavery in the first century wasn't the same as what we had in, it's in, in the European form of it and in this country in the, in the 16th, 17th, or 17th, 18th, 19th centuries. The way it worked in the first century was this. Um, if, you, if you owed a debt you couldn't pay back, oftentimes you would, you would um, become an indentured servant. You would hire yourself out, uh, but you did whatever the person that you owed the debt to wanted you to, and so you became their slave. Or, in another case, you would, you would volunteer to become a slave to increase your station in life. Sounds weird, right? But there is no such thing as a self-made man or woman in the first century, okay? You couldn't raise up social classes. And so if you wanted to get ahead, if you wanted to get an education, if you wanted to rub shoulders with the upper crust, you, you couldn't just go and do that if you were, if you were a pauper. You, you actually would become the slave of a wealthy person, and then they would educate you. They would raise your station, and often after the terms of your service were done, then you would be one of them after a time. Now, in terms of hierarchy in the home, the parents come first, right? And one would think that the next would be the kids because the slaves are the slaves and we have a particular view of that, but not in the first century because you see in the first century the kids are kids. kids. And 
the slaves actually know what's going on. And so that's specifically what Paul is talking about here. In the ancient household, the children, and again, Paul's primary thing, what he's talking about here, when he says sons, he means the oldest son, like the, the dude who gets all the stuff. That he is actually, though he's, he owns it all, he's the heir of all, he's going to come into it when, when the time is set. He becomes the heir and owns all of the stuff. But for, the most, for, the, for most of his childhood, he lives under a slave. Under the authority of slaves. And so that's what Paul means. He's no different than a slave until he comes of age. Yes, child of the son. Yes, he's going to inherit all the stuff. But functionally, he's no different than a slave because he hasn't come into his inheritance. In fact, he's under a steward and a manager is what the ESV says, which is a slave put in charge of him. The so what of that comes in verse 3. Okay, Why is that a big deal? Well, Paul says this. Thus we also, when we were underage, had been enslaved by the elementary principles of the world. Okay, that's a little weird. But follow me because this actually makes a ton of sense. That phrase elementary principles is important. In the ancient world... Especially in the times, if you're familiar at all with any kind of uh, philosophy, like Socrates is the big gun, right? He's the big gun in the ancient Greek world, and then you had Plato. But Socrates is the big one. Before Socrates, most, most Greeks, most of the uh, you know, intellectuals believed that the entire universe was governed by an element. Like fire, or water, or dirt, air. It's like an episode of Avatar. But it's like, they think that the entire world is governed by these elements. And not just that the fire undergirds everything, but in fact, that there are certain principles that go along with that. So fire, the, one of the things with fire is it tends to change things, right? You light fire to a forest, it, it changes. It's no longer a forest. And so the idea was like, that, that for us means that we always have to be changing. And there are little things like that. Uh, water, you know, Bruce Lee had a lot to say about that. Become like water and all that stuff. So that's the same kind of idea. In the ancient world, there were these not just elements that make up things, but spiritual forces behind those things. And this was well known. But here's here's the kicker in what Paul is trying to say here. Jews would have understood that for non-Jews. Okay, Those who weren't Jews, they called them Gentiles, right? That was understood for them, but Jews would have never seen themselves in the same boat. I mean, they knew God made everything. They didn't believe that fire was underneath everything or water. Like, God made everything. God's the key. But Paul is saying, we. See, Jews would have believed that non-Jews were spiritual slaves. They are, they are enslaved to whatever God they, they worshipped, whatever little statue they held up in front of themselves, whatever false beliefs they had. But, but Jews didn't have it. They had true worship. They had the true God. They were called God's children after all. And that is why verses 1 and 2 matter. Paul is saying, okay, yeah, yeah, children, got it. You're in the same boat as everybody else. You're just like the slaves. We're all in the same boat. We're all enslaved. We're all under the authority of these basic spiritual assumptions. Okay, maybe you're confused. Let me sketch out some of these from the Bible, uh, some themes from the Bible that may help. Because you see, the Bible tells the story of how humanity came to be broken and separated from God, that we're all like that. Not just a few of us, all of us, that we broke relationship with him. Like most of us think that if humanity has a problem at all, if there's any problem that, that I have, that it's probably because, uh, the problem's that I'm not good enough. I need to be better, I need to be a little more moral, I need to try a little harder, I need to get a better work ethic. Isn't that what the beginning of the, of the New Year's about anyway? That's what we all tend to think. Okay, what am I going to do? I'm going to diet more, I'm going to exercise at least until next week. And then I'm going to do, you know, X, Y, or Z. We all think the problem is, is that we're not good. The Bible, though, says that our problem isn't that we're not good. It's that our relationship with God is broken. 
We were made to be dependent on him, to find our meaning in him, our worth in him, our value in him, our understanding of reality, like everything is supposed to derive from him. But you and I are hell-bent on finding those things anywhere but God. And the Bible says this is true of all of us. And unless God acts, we are all stuck in this. And here's where this ties in. The Jews at the time, think with me for a second, because we would think of them the way we think today of like religious folks, right? We're all aware of religious folks. Some of us in here are religious folks. Like, we know who religious folks are. Religious folks never argue that they're perfect, but they're on the right track, right? I mean, that's what we tend to think. They go to church, they try and keep their noses clean, you know. But those irreligious people, yeah, they're, they're the ones who are really messed up. Paul says, no, that's not actually the case. We're all in the same boat. We're all in spiritual bondage. We're all held fast by those elementary principles, those basic spiritual assumptions. And saying that, though, I, I run the risk of offending, probably a little bit at least. For some of you, that you might be offended because you self-identify as being religious. You're a religious person. Do religious things. That's good. You've been to church your whole life. I mean... I mean, maybe not recently, but, but you've done the whole church thing and you, you, you agree with the Doobie Brothers, right? Like, Jesus is all right with you. You're, you're good. You've done your bit. You may even believe that some of what the Bible says. You think Jesus is an okay dude. Or maybe you're, you, you're not religious, but you would consider yourself spiritual. I'm wondering how you would define that. I've never found a consistent definition of what it means to be spiritual. But maybe it's, maybe it's just that you, you think of yourself as fairly in tune with a spiritual reality and you try and love it except people, right? If you're religious or spiritual, you know that you're, you, you've got this spiritual ledger and you want to try and make sure that it stays in the black and you do things to get it there. Sure, it's not flawless, but you're, you think you're not in the red. You're not in bondage, are you? For others, though, you, maybe you're offended because you're not, you're not sure you buy into the whole spiritual thing, right? Because when I said the irreligious, you're like, yeah, yeah, that's me. I, I, I identify that. That's, that's me. I don't, I don't buy any of this stuff. But I just said that all of us are in spiritual bondage. And you disagree. You're like, I'm not sure I buy any of that. I don't, spiritual, what is that? I don't, I don't even think that's a thing. You're, you're free to follow what you want. You're not beholden to any so-called God. Your problem with religion, in fact, is, is, the, is, is that it seems to always be a, an issue of control. It's a way to control people. So the notion that you're in the same boat as all the religious people, that's, that's beyond incredible. I think the reason we get offended is because we misunderstand what these elementary principles are. So let me flesh some of them out. Let me give you one. Let me give you an underlying spiritual assumption that Paul's talking about. I know I'm flawed, so I have to work hard to make myself better. Only then can I be accepted. Basic principle. I'm flawed and I've got to work hard to be accepted. Here's another one. God is real and he's real angry. And if I keep obeying him, he'll like me. If I stop, he won't. Okay? Spiritual assumption. I have to create an identity for myself to make myself somebody. Uh, the world is dangerous. That's an easy one, right? The world is dangerous, and I need to make myself safe. Did you notice the common assumption in all of them? Myself. The common assumption in all of them is myself. I need to work hard myself. I need to, to work. I need to be moral for myself for God. I need to keep myself safe. I need to make myself someone. They're about independence. 
God made us to be dependent on him. But we are bent. We are indelibly bent on depending on anything but him. Of course we are. Look, we're made to depend on something. We were made for dependence. You will depend on something to make you someone. You will depend on something for your identity. You will depend on something to prove your worth. You will depend on something to make you right. The question is not what, or the question is not if, it's what. Okay? But maybe you still don't buy this. So let me make it even more explicit. Let me give you some of the common principles we have in our culture. Some of the things we're most likely in this room to be in bondage to, okay? And we've got a good, healthy smattering of us religious folks in here. So probably the first one I want to talk about is morality, right? As long as we do good things, God will like us. Now, when I say morality, that, that's a little flexible, isn't it? Because some of us in this room, we like traditional morality. What I mean by that is like we're big on, we, we're, we, we harp on uh, substances and sexuality, Right? Substances and sexuality. That's where our morality falls. And we're like, as long as I stay away from those things, then I'm generally okay. But some of us, we, we have a morality that's a little less traditional. It's no less strong, just less traditional. What I mean, we don't, we're not big on sexuality and substances, but we are big on like um, economics and the environment. <laughs> right? Like, you can sleep with whoever you want, but you better recycle that milk carton. You know what I'm saying? Or like, look, you can, you can, uh, you can, Smoke whatever you want to smoke in your free time, but you better care for the poor. It's not the, the, both of those folks are not any less moral than the other. They've just chosen a different morality to follow. Right? Others of us don't look to morality, right? Uh, you know, we're, we're not looking to our performance as the basis of our hope. It's not morality, it's power. We don't, want, we don't need to be good, we just need to be in control. Right? I, don't need, I, don't need, uh, I, I don't need to be good, I just need to be in control of all my circumstances, whether that's in our social circles, whether that's in our jobs, whether that's in our homes. I've got to know what all the variables are and keep them all in place. And if I have them, I know that I will be safe. For others of us, it's money, right? Our bankroll is going to prove that we're somebody. The world tells us we're not, maybe some friends do or our parents did, but bankroll will show, will show us that we're somebody. Whether you show off that bankroll by having the latest eye product in your pocket or wearing the, the latest pair of Jordans, the, the issue's the same. It's the money that makes you. For others, it's success though, right? You don't need the money, although it's nice and normally the two come together, but you, somebody told you at some time you're not worth anything and you'll show them. I'm going to show you that I'll be somebody. And I will succeed where others failed. I will do it where they couldn't. Still others, though, it's, it's finding, they, they find it in love and approval. As long as I'm liked, as long as I'm wanted, as long as I'm desired, I will do anything. I will do anything as long as I'm not alone. And for still others, it's respect, right? We hide our faults, we exaggerate our accomplishments to get respect. And challengers to that respect must be put down. Whether that's through a word in a corner to someone else, or whether that's through a fist on the street. We will put down those challengers. So what is it for you? Look, don't, don't pretend you can't relate, right? You ain't fooling anybody. You ain't fooling me. You're not fooling the dude next to you, and you ain't fooling God. What is it for you? Here's the thing about all these. None of them are bad. Respect isn't bad. Money's not bad. Success isn't bad. Being desired and liked and, and wanted, that's not bad. 
Control and power isn't necessarily bad. These things aren't, these things are, are good things. They just can't be ultimate things. They're very good, but they can never be God. So long as I say to myself, I must have power. I must have money. I must have approval. I must have success. I must have, I must have value. I must be safe. I must be moral so God will like me. So long as I say, I must, I'm in bondage to that thing that follows the must. And I will serve it. I will do anything I can because I must have it. So you see, it doesn't matter if you're religious or not. So long as you have to do something to solve your problem, no matter how you see it, whether it's I'm not good or I'm not successful or I'm not somebody, so long as you have to do something to change that, the Bible says you are in bondage. Religious, irreligious, Spiritual, unspiritual, it don't matter. But there is good news that Paul lays out for us in a new standing. Look down at verses 4 and 5, if you still get your passage out, for a new representative. He says this. But, now, Paul often will do this in his, he'll, he'll give our condition, and then there'll be this very strong, there's a couple of ways you can do it in the original Greek, there's very strong adversative in there. And he says, here's, here's the way we are, but... When the fullness of time came, God sent his son, born of woman, born under the law, so that we might be redeemed from under the law, so that we might receive adoptions of sons. All right, listen close. We can't miss this. Here is the great difference between Christianity and everything else. Okay? Christianity on the one side and every other world religion, every world system, every philosophy or pop cultural self-help. Here's the difference. All these over here will say, this is what you need to do to get to God. You follow these pillars, these commandments, these steps, this path, uh, do these mantras, read these things, and you can have your best life now. Like, if you do this, you, this will happen for you, right? Christianity doesn't say that. And I know that's shocking because someone's like, I, I thought it did. What are you saying? I thought it did. Christianity doesn't say that. Christianity does not say, here's what you need to do to get to God. It says, here's what God did to get to you. Not, here's what you need to do to make yourself right, but here's what God did to make you right. You see, and I know this is often misunderstood, both by those who say they're Christians and by those that aren't, but Christianity does not give you rules to follow. It gives you a rescuer to trust. All of Christianity rises or falls on who Jesus is and what he did. All of it. You can't remove him from the system the way you can Muhammad. Or even Moses. You remove them from the system, you still have their teachings. And that's the important part, is it not? You remove Jesus from the system, you have nothing. You have vanity. Paul says God sent His son, that is loaded language. In the Old Testament, the son that was awaited was God's answer to his promise to rescue from our brokenness. Because the Bible describes our plight not just as needing reformation. We don't just need reforming. Like I said, we need rescue. And this had to come from outside ourselves, right? I say this a lot as kind of an illustration I think is helpful. Like, if you got two drowning people who try to save each other, they drown faster. A drowning man cannot save another drowning person. It can't happen. They need someone who's not drowning to help them. And so God took on flesh in Jesus to rescue us. Okay? Christians believe that God exists in three persons. One what with three who's. Okay? God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And in, in the fullness of time, Paul says, God the Son became one of us in Jesus. 
to rescue us. He was born under the law, which means uh, he kept God's law. He lived perfectly. He lived a life that was perfectly pleasing to God. Scriptures describe it like this. He loved God and he loved others with all of his being. Not just for a second, but all the time. And then Paul says that he came to redeem us from under the law. Here's what that means. The Bible says that when we broke relationship with God, when we betrayed him. Okay, I know that we think sin is the breaking of rules. Okay? We get that, that sin word and we always think breaking of rules. And depending on which version of morality you have, you know what that means. Okay? So, uh, but, but the Bible talks about it in terms of breaking relationship. We betrayed God. We sought our own independence. And when that happened, we came under guilt. Shouldn't be surprising. All betrayals bring guilt. You've been betrayed. I've been betrayed. You've betrayed people. I've betrayed people. Okay? We know the guilt that comes from that. So Jesus came to live the life that we couldn't and then to bear our guilt before God. And that is forgiveness. Bears repeating. Forgiveness is always the betrayed person bearing the betrayal for the betrayer. Forgiveness is always the betrayed person bearing the betrayal for the betrayer. You can't make betrayals go away. You can't make offenses just disappear. You're no genie in a bottle and neither am I. It is bearing it for the sake of another. And this, this is what Jesus did and is now offered as a gift to be received. It isn't about what we do. It's all about what God has done and whether we are willing to depend on him for it all. And that brings us to a new relation. Look down at verses 6 and 7. Paul says, and because you are sons... God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So then you are no longer slaves, but sons. And if sons, heirs through God. All right, stay with me if you can. This is huge. I know many of us think, if you have any connection to Christianity at all, what you tend to think, and some Christians believe this too, that, that, um, that what Jesus did, if somebody asks you, why, why did Jesus come? You say, oh, he came to teach us some good stuff and to die on the cross for our sins. Okay, right? We're all together on that? Okay, he came to die on the cross for our sins. What most of us think is what that means is that he gives us a blank slate. He just prettys us up. Prettys up real nice and sends us back out. And now we can get our lives together, right? We can just clean up our... No. That's not it at all. Paul says, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts crying, Abba, Father. Now here's what that means. Abba is Aramaic. Aramaic is the language that Jesus most likely spoke most often. Could he have spoken Hebrew? Sure, he could have, but nobody in the area really did. Could he have spoken Greek? Yes, he probably did. Everybody in the area spoke Greek when they went to market. But with with friends, he's probably speaking Aramaic, okay? And scholars will tell you that that word Abba, it's the word for father, but it's not the word for father. It's the word for dad. It's not formal language. It's a term of endearment, okay? Father is what you call, you know, some holy person or some, you know, what, what the prince probably calls his dad when he's in, in court. But, but this is a term of endearment. It is a highly relational term. It's not exactly daddy, unless you're from like the deep south where grown men call their dad daddy, you know, like it's not, I can't even do that accent. Sorry. Like some of y'all can, no, never mind. Uh, But it's not quite exactly that. It is, it is used by adults, but the important thing for us to see is that it is an address that was unique on the lips of Jesus. In all of the literature of the first century, in all of the stuff we have about different people talking about the God of Israel, no one ever called him Abba. They may have called him Father in a formal way, but never Abba. Except 
Jesus. Jesus called God Abba. And what Paul is implying, listen, this, is, this will blow your mind. What Paul is implying is that because of Jesus' work, because of what he did, how he lived, how he died, that he, was, that he rose again, because of what he did, you can have the same kind of relationship with God, the Father, that he did. The exact same kind. The same level of intimacy. You can call him dad. That is not a blank slate, friends. When Jesus was baptized, God's voice was heard from heaven. And the voice that was heard said, This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Another way of saying this, in whom I delight. In whom my heart desires and yearns for. That is what we have in Jesus. It's not a blank slate at all. It's a full one. It's a slate full of the pleasure of God. Full of the love of God. Full of the delight of God. And Paul says that this actually comes to us through God. Which means that it isn't something we accomplish on our own. It's not that we go and be good and when you're good enough, daddy will like you. He gives it to us as a gift. He provides it for us. Through Jesus. Now let me conclude simply by drawing some of these strings together. Because some of us are here this morning and this is totally new to us, right? And if you're bent a little more religious, as some of us probably are, then you're struggling right now because you're kind of offended because what you think I've said is that all of your work, all of your religiosity, all of your spirituality isn't really accomplishing anything. And that's exactly what I said. Before God, it's not accomplishing anything for you. Matter of fact, it's probably doing the opposite of what you think it's doing. But at the same time, you're probably a little enticed by the prospect that you don't have to feverishly keep working because Jesus has done more than you ever could. And he's offering you the benefits of what he's done. And you're wondering to yourself, what if I could actually be assured that God is perfectly pleased with me? How would that change my life? That's a good question. But if you're bent away from being religious, you're probably really skeptical because it sounds too good to be true, right? And you're thinking to yourself, Rick, like, you you don't know me, man. You don't know what my life is, what I've done, who I've hurt, how I've used. And you're right, I don't. But frankly, like, y'all don't know me either, right? I mean, it's not like I was born with a Bible in my hand, like, Jesus, you know, like, that, that is not how things work. Like, I didn't, I came to this a little later in life. You don't know the the wreckage I've left behind in my life. The failures that I've compounded, the people that I've wounded, the scars and the layers of scars in my own heart. But I don't, you don't have to know, and I don't have to know what you've done, because Jesus is enough. There's nothing wrong with you that's not wrong with me, and Jesus is enough for both. But here's the thing. It's not simply enough to understand this. You have to have faith. And that's a slippery word right there. But here's the way I normally explain it. I can believe that this chair is going to hold me. I can think a lot of good things about this chair. It's got four legs. It's really stable. I've heard the most stable is three, but it's got four. Sounds good to me. One more. It can't hurt. So, you know, that's good. Mm, Good chair. That'll, That'll be great. I mean, it's a folding chair, but it's still, I think it'll be all right. I can believe a lot about it. But I have not had faith in this chair until I put my butt in the seat. 
would have been really awkward if it had broken, right? <laughs> That's what faith is. You can believe a lot of good stuff about Jesus. I don't care. Listen to me. I don't care this morning if you believe Jesus is the Son of God who died on the cross for my sins, rose from the third day. So long as that stays knowledge and your butt's not in the seat, it is useless to you. It is absolutely useless to you. You've got to put your weight on him. You've got to say, I don't have any hope in me. Stop hedging your bets. Put your butt in the seat. Today's the day. Today's the day. And maybe you've been, you've been flirting with this for a long time. Maybe you've just never even thought about it before. And you thought, I'm good. I go to church. I do good. I got all the ribbons from Sunday school growing up. Like perfect attendance medals. and Good for you. If you're not in the seat, man, it's all rubbish. It's all trash. You've got, you've got to have faith. Look, I, I know your life is jacked up, and I know you're doubting right now that it's as good as I said. But you've got to return to dependence on God through Jesus. It is what you are made for. Others of us, though, you've been Christians a long time, and so you're thinking to yourself, this is old news, except it isn't. Right? Because so long as, yeah, we, we've, we've made the decision, we've sat down, but the problem is, is that over time we kind of scoot over a little bit. We got like one thing hanging off over here because we're hedging our bets. We're like, yeah, yeah, Jesus can fill me, Jesus can do all this, but man, it'd be really good if people loved me. Man, it'd be really nice if I had success or power because then what if Jesus isn't enough? What if he's not enough? What if it's not as good as he said? You know what, I trusted him a long time and my life still looks like this. What, why? Listen, Jesus doesn't just offer to take your penalty. Jesus gives you his standing. Can anything in the universe compare with being not just a child of the God of heaven and earth? When Paul uses son, it's intentional. Because in the ancient world, the son got the inheritance. When he says you are sons, what he means, he's not being misogynistic. What he's meaning is that you get all the stuff. Can anything compare with being the heir of all things? Can power compare? Can, money, can sex compare? What, what are they going to give you? Listen, what, I, even in the best circumstances, momentary satisfaction that the next day or the next minute you're going to have to get more because it's not going to be enough. God is the delight that we were made for. Like our, our call to worship said this morning, our souls pant for him like a thirsty animal in the desert. We long to be with him and he can more than satisfy you. For in him we have gone from orphan, from slave to precious child in whom God is well pleased. Not because of what we've done, but because of what he was willing to do for us. Would you pray with me? Father, we are in this room in many different places. Some of us, that is the first time we've ever heard anything like that. And we're mad. Some of us, it's the first time we've heard anything and we're, we're confused and enticed, maybe. For others of us, we've heard it. We haven't believed it. And for still others of us, we have heard it. And we just forgot on the way to church this morning. Lord, we all need your gospel. Myself, most of all. 
So Lord, would you come and would you apply that to us? Give us faith. Give us faith to believe. Give us faith to believe again on Jesus, to know not just that he can be the satisfaction for our sins, but he can be the one in whom our souls can find satisfaction fully and truly. Wherever my friends are in this place, Lord, I pray you'd bring us all to that point, even now. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.